when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the shock general election result, how Britain is going to manage with a hung parliament, and what lies ahead for Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. I'm delighted to be joined by Janine Ganesh, the FT's political columnist, election analyst Matt Singh, and political commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So, Britain woke up on Friday morning to find Theresa May's big election gamble had failed. Instead of romping home with a clear majority, she said lost seats and we've ended up with a surprising hung parliament. Aside from some notable gains in Scotland, the Tories lost lots of seats in England, particularly in London. Labour, on the other hand, beat all expectations of people like me and put in a very solid vote share performance, but it didn't gain that many seats. It's still unable to form a government, so Mrs May appears to be entering a deal with the Oster Unionists and forming a minority government. But how sustainable is all this? How long till the next election? And how long will Mrs May last? So one or two questions to begin there. Matt Singh, can you just begin by taking us through the numbers of the election and where we stand? Sure. So with one seat left to declare, that's Kensington on its 27th recount, I think, by now. So the Conservatives are on 318 or 319. So that would be technically seven or eight short. But obviously with the Sinn Féin abstentions, they're not going to be too far short, but they will need the support presumed to be of the DUP who increased their seats to 10, having gobbled up the Ulster Unionists. So that will take the Conservatives over the line and give them a small effective majority. Labour are on 261 or 262, depending on the Kensington results. So that's up 30 or so from last time. So clearly an advance and um, I think Jeremy Corbyn and his crew will be very happy with that. In Scotland, the SNP lost quite a lot of seats, which I guess we'll come on to down uh, 21. In fact, they were pretty close to losing a few more. And the Lib Dems actually dropped back slightly in vote share, but they gained seats. They are up to 13, 12 or 13, I 12 with a recount in northeast Fife, I think. They lost that, so uh, it'll be 12. By one vote. <laughs> this is all the time of recording. Things may change slightly by the time you listen to this. And very briefly, Matt, where were the Conservative losses focused and the Labour gains? Well, there seemed to be a correlation in terms of the Labour-Conservative swing very much along Remain-Leave lines. So the Conservatives were doing less well in Remain areas, but doing better in Leave areas. So it does seem as though the switching was along those lines. There was also a correlation with age. It seemed as though younger areas, obviously they were also more likely to be Remain areas, but it does seem as though there's an increased turnout from young people, so that helped Labour in those areas. So Janan Ganesh, what went wrong with Theresa May's gamble? And as Matt said, have we seen the Remainers' revenge in this election? Well, the first thing that went wrong was beyond her control. Labour just turned out to campaign much more persuasively than any of us expected, certainly more than she expected. But then you have to look at the unforced errors on her side. To call a seven-week campaign was to test the patience of the country. 
to then refuse to say anything of consequence during the seven weeks, I think, was a borderline act of provocation to the country. Specific missteps over policy, most famously social care, undermined her support amongst her own voters, elderly voters. But then there's something broader, less specific, and that's just her, to be totally cruel about it, her talent level as a politician. And I think she was always very lucky to be in the premiership. It was down to an extraordinarily weak field of candidates in the Tory leadership last year, and she was the least bad of the lot. But that was never a great qualification. And I think her limitations were exposed in the campaign in a way they never were in the preceding nine months or so of being prime minister. So as bad as all of that is, it's hard to get away from the first thing I mentioned, which is that Labour and Jeremy Corbyn in particular defied pretty much all expectations. Miranda Green, our conventional wisdom was that Jeremy Corbyn had a lot of support and social media on Twitter and among his own supporters, but that might not necessarily translate into seats and votes. And there's a good chance Mr Corbyn has actually tapped into something and been able to do that. And the fact that he's taken Labour's vote share from about 31% to over 40% is really quite an incredible achievement there. And you do have to wonder if we have another election in the near future. We'll come on to that in a moment. And Labour ran it with the full support of its MPs behind Mr Corbyn. He could actually become Prime Minister. We all made a catastrophic mistake by underestimating the Labour campaign. And I think that was because... We, in some way, got ourselves stuck at looking at this year, comparing it to the 2015 election, rather than realising that this huge electoral event of the Brexit referendum had happened in the meantime and only one year ago. And it has done, for example, things to turn out that we wouldn't expect in a normal general election. And actually, I think this thing of Corbyn's ability to mobilise the youth vote, which we all knew that there was a disproportionate level of support for Labour in that youngest voting group, the fact they actually turned up this time has shocked everybody, possibly even themselves, and they'll all be delighted this morning. But I think there is a level on which the electorate is never wrong. And in fact, neither Jeremy Corbyn nor Theresa May deserved to win this election, and they haven't. And so in a sense, rather than the strange position we were left in after the Brexit referendum, with a narrow victory for leave that was then interpreted as something horribly overly dramatic, we're now in the right situation, which is that the country doesn't quite know who it wants to put into Downing Street, but certainly neither of these two. So I'm actually incredibly impressed once again with the wisdom of the electorate at a general election to come up with the right answer. So, Matt, we're in a hung parliament situation and Theresa May has gone to the palace to see the Queen to form a government. And as you said, she's done some kind of partnership with the DUP. We don't know any details on that and what it might entail. How sustainable is that? You know, could she get through five years, do you think, with that kind of majority and that kind of relationship with another party? Well, these days, that sort of majority would, in theory, last five years. I'm not sure if she personally will stay on as Prime Minister for five years, but if the Conservatives wanted to go five years, they probably could manage it, depending how well they do in, in by-elections and so on. But certainly in terms of the dynamics with the DUP, I mean, how that's going to play into the Brexit negotiations, how it plays into the Northern Ireland situation, of course, because the British government, in theory, is supposed to be an impartial arbiter of that, and that's very, very difficult, because apart from the fact that the situation in Northern Ireland is unusually difficult at the moment, also the fact that at the same time, they're relying on DP's votes at Westminster. That makes that very difficult. So it could, in theory, go five years, but it's certainly not going to be easy. Miranda, the Conservatives and the DUP, the DUP are very socially conservative, which is going to be interesting to see how that gels with some of the left side of the Conservative Party. But they're generally agreed on most things, except some key elements of Brexit. And this is where it all gets a bit 
tricky because the DUP wants a soft border in Ireland and it wants Northern Ireland to stay within the customs union. Theresa May doesn't want that. And so we are approaching some kind of clash on Brexit. Well, we are. But as George Osborne has been saying with some glee for the last few hours, there is probably now a majority in the House of Commons to stay in the single market and to stay in the customs union. So that's the new Labour MPs plus the SNP. Lib Dems, and, SNP and, and indeed the DUP who may be part of a government. And let's not forget the Scottish Tories, because the Scottish Tories have saved the Conservative Party's bacon and are putting them back into Downing Street. And if Ruth Davidson decides to actually exert her influence, that will also seriously soften the Brexit stance of the government. All of these are very significant factors. Do you see Brexit changing much, Janan, given this election result? Because from the time of recording, 11 days' time, Theresa May is due to sit down with Michelle Barnier and begin those Brexit talks. And who knows what kind of government she'll have then? Will she be able to pass a budget or a Queen's speech? And she's meant to be representing the whole country, and we still don't know anything about her negotiating position. Yeah, this is the Conservatives' ultimate betrayal of the country. The fact that they invoked Article 50 before the election means that the two-year deadline is already ticking. They're now, as you say, 11 days away from the negotiations without a secure government and without any internal agreements about the terms we're going to seek in those negotiations. So Britain is horribly exposed to external events. The EU can effectively just wait us out and then we tumble out in two years' time on WTO terms. But as to the parliamentary balance, I think there's no majority for any particular version of Brexit. The closest I can think of is, uh, as Miranda indicated, something like the EEA, where we have substantial single market membership in return for observing lots of EU things. But one of those things will be free movement, you assume. And the public almost certainly had that in mind when they voted for Brexit last summer. There's no indication from the breakdown of results yesterday that the public have changed their minds on immigration specifically or free movement. And therefore, you've got a situation where, yes, the ideal compromise is some kind of single market membership. But unless the EU change their mind about that being attached to free movement and the four freedoms being indivisible, then there's no way of selling that to the British public. And so you've got a situation where no deal is viable in parliamentary terms or viable for the electorate. Because when we look at the topic of immigration, Miranda, Theresa May has not changed that at all. I doubt she will ever change. One thing we do know about her is that once she takes a position, it's very hard to budge her from that. And also, both the Conservatives and Labour had in their manifesto, as people take notice of these things, they will end free movement. And I think it's very unlikely that people no longer want that. So this is a bit of a problem for MPs now trying to rally that with DUP, the new batch of MPs and the public's will and which mandates clash into each other. It's all really a bit of a mess. It is a mess, I agree. And there are serious problems with the And does this EEA mean a second referendum, do you think? Well, it could do down the line. I mean, let's not forget, although it seems like 100 years ago, that when Boris Johnson was flailing around in the leadership battle, he at one point suggested a second referendum and that you'd have a first referendum and the country would vote to leave and you'd then negotiate a better deal and vote yourselves back in. So who knows where we might be in three years' time. But I think on this question of immigration and free movement in exchange for membership of the single market, I'm a bit more optimistic, actually, because I think the Labour Party can say things to its people that the Conservative Party cannot. And if the Labour Party leadership can be brought on board for some sort of single market compromise, they could actually tell people in their core Labour areas, which have come back to them in this election in large part, that this is about prosperity and this is about jobs and it could be a very different conversation. But that depends on the Labour leadership actually agreeing to do that.
Right, Matt, let's talk about Scotland and what's happened there. It's arguably the most interesting part of what's happened is the SNP, who dominated everything north of the border. They won 56 out of 59 seats at the 2015 election. They've had a big blow and they've lost lots of seats to the Scottish Tories, surprisingly, but also surprisingly, the Scottish Liberal Democrats. And Scottish Labour, people were writing off, and I think actually their vote share was slightly up on 2015. Obviously, the Conservative vote was up substantially. The SNP lost about a quarter of their vote and 21 seats. Certainly, if you've been following Scotland, the 2016 Holyrood election was very much the same. This is kind of an extension of this. The Conservatives have basically marched back into all the places they held in the 80s, basically the entire northeast and then other affluent bits like East Renfrewshire and then all the three across the border. I mean, this election in Scotland has been very much along constitutional lines and there does seem to be a very clear backlash against the stance that Nicola Sturgeon has taken. And so you see not just the Scottish Tories gaining, but the Scottish Lib Dems doing very well, the Scottish Labour coming back with several seats and some pretty big swings in places. So the map suddenly looks very different. A lot of this, Janelle, is the result of Ruth Davidson, who's fought a very successful campaign and has been hailed as one of the most successful Conservatives in the country. Actually, one of the few comes out of this looking very good at the moment. And if she had run and won for Westminster seat, then we could be having very different conversations about who might be succeeding Theresa May. And she ran that very much on a no-to-independence referendum campaign. I think India F2 is pretty much stone dead at the moment. It has to be shelled for a long time. And Nicola Sturgeon must regret floating the idea of a second referendum. She was forced Uh, into it by some accounts. I think there was a certain amount of pressure on her. But I remember when she announced it, there was some nervousness amongst SNP politicians themselves because they sensed no enthusiasm from their own constituents on an anecdotal basis for a second referendum. So it was a huge gamble by her, the second biggest failed gamble of this election behind Theresa May's decision to call it, was Nicola Sturgeon's position on that second referendum. But you mentioned Ruth Davidson, who I think, as brilliantly as Jeremy Corbyn has done, emerges from this election as probably the outstanding politician in the UK, really. If she were in possession of a Westminster seat, I think she'd walk a Tory leadership election, as long as you could come up with a line on an EU exit that was uh, amenable to enough people in the party. Without her, and the Tory leadership speculation is beginning already, you're down to a list which probably includes Boris Johnson, David Davis, perhaps Amber Rudd, who scraped in to her seat overnight. And that, I think, is the beginnings of a leadership race that will exist informally, even while Theresa May is prime minister. I mean, she may be able to govern for months, conceivably a couple of years, but all the while, the manoeuvring and the taking of positions will happen, and it will be an excruciating experience for her and I think George Osborne on TV last night evoked the phrase from the 1990s that she'll be in office but not in power. Absolutely Miranda when you look at that list of candidates Janan just mentioned none of them are particularly inspiring to be quite honest that you look at Boris Johnson he failed to persuade the Conservative Party last year he was leadership material and he might struggle again I could imagine a situation when Brexit's getting difficult he would come out and say let's just walk away have the hardest cleanest of breaks and that's the easy option for the Tory party because it requires no ideological compromise Amber Rudd as Janan said only slid back into her seat and might represent a more kind of liberal conservatism and David Davis or Michael Fallon would very much be caretaker leaders until someone from a new generation would come forward. But out of all this, 
when do you think the leadership contest happens? Well, it's a conundrum because I don't think there's any appetite for another leadership contest amongst the Conservative MPs. But clearly, Theresa May is kind of fatally weakened. So we were discussing that it's like being fired from your job and then having to work out a really painful notice period. And I think actually what will probably happen is that the Tory MPs will coalesce around somebody. That seems to me the most likely outcome at the moment. And I think it could well be Boris or Amber Rudd. I understand the point about her very slim majority now in Hastings because she was under serious threat there last night. But even so, she came out strongly in the campaign and both she and Boris are very good at hedging their bets on the lines they've previously taken on this crucial issue of Brexit. Well, they're quite flexible politicians, to use a double-edged compliment. The advantage of a Boris Johnson-Amber Rudd joint ticket would be that you seemingly square off a majority of the party and that Boris campaigned to leave. Amber Rudd took the opposite view. Both of them, especially Amber Rudd, I think, has a sufficiently emollient personality to bring in sections of the party with whom they may have disagreed during the campaign. I think that's quite a broad-based platform, actually. And I wonder whether they begin probing the idea of a joint ticket. The person whose thoughts I'm curious about are George Osborne's, actually. I mean, overnight, he was struggling to contain his uh, schadenfreude when the exit poll came through. But that Lee at a defeat for hard Brexit and Theresa May as the candidate of hard Brexit must be balanced off with some regret that he's no longer in Parliament. I never thought it was likely that he could win a Tory leadership election and therefore it's not as if he's missed out on becoming Prime Minister. But were he there now, he might become, you know, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor, some kind of influential figure. And now he's having to observe it from the outside. And it's quite a lot of talent for the Tories to go without. Well, thankfully, man, it's quite easy to know what George Osborne thinks because he <laughs> edits the Evening Standard and we can open it most days and get a good gleam into what he's thinking. And what was most interesting was the editorial yesterday, which was a very reluctant conservative endorsement made a very similar to the Financial Times. Is. But in that leader, which we assume was directed, if not written by Mr Osborne, it specifically names... Amber Rudd and Ruth Davidson as MPs who are unhappy at the direction Theresa May taking the party, which raised the question to what Janan said. Mm. If Amber Rudd was to run, she'd probably run on a very different sort of ticket. But do you have any gut feeling, I'm going to come to Matt on this as well, about when Theresa May might decide to step aside? I think this is a really difficult question because actually I think it's good that she's decided not to go immediately. David Cameron was only too happy to walk away from the mess he'd made after the Brexit referendum and indeed Ed Miliband to walk away from the mess in the Labour Party. And if she stays and faces up to her own mess and deals with it for a few weeks or months, it's probably quite healthy and will perhaps reassure the markets a little, which is no small consideration in this situation. But I don't think it's tenable for her to be the person going into the Brexit negotiations. I cannot see how that works. So, Matt, I was sort of thinking about these scenarios. You could have that she goes in the next days or weeks if the whole thing she can't put a cabinet together or the party expresses no confidence. That's probably the most dangerous situation given the impending Brexit talks unless we can get some sort of stalling period on them sorting. The next one would be the autumn, which would be that she has this period, the government keeps going, doesn't really do much, and the party's not happy, she's not happy, and she now she's going to make way for someone else. Or it could be a couple of months or years down the line when Brexit is motoring on, there's a lot of heavy fire that comes through, and the party is happy to let her take it, and then once Article 50 is done, then she steps aside. Out of all those, what would your gut on which one it might be? I'm really not sure, to be honest. I mean, I think 
there's a window over the summer or thereabouts and then there's maybe another window in 2019 when the two years is up and then the transition or implementation phase or whatever then that may be a sensible time for a leadership context but at any point between those two it, it seems like a, an awkward time janan the odd thing is that at any other phase of history under any other circumstances she could stagger on for the rest of this parliament with the help of the dup but what makes it completely different are these exit talks. There is no way she can go to Brussels, where she's now a laughingstock, frankly, and commence a set of negotiations, knowing that it'll probably be another prime minister who concludes those negotiations, perhaps with a completely different set of desired terms, two years down the line. So if this was the 1970s, I wouldn't particularly worry about her position. You know, it's embarrassing, but she could stagger on. We now have an unprecedented diplomatic exercise to begin and she can't possibly do it. She doesn't have the personal clout, the moral authority, can't achieve an internal agreement within the Tory party about what they're seeking from these terms, and she knows that probably within two years someone else will have to wrap up the deal. I agree with that strongly, but I'd also like to remind people that there is a man called Philip Hammond who's been locked in a cupboard for the last seven weeks, but who is in fact the Chancellor of the Exchequer and who had the temerity to stand up at the Conservative Party conference and say that with the Brexit vote, people were not consciously voting to get poorer. And if he re-emerges as a serious figure, because the strong rumour was that May was going to fire him, if he now survives and can become a player in these discussions inside the top of the Tory party, that's another hopeful sign for softening Brexit, but it's also another hopeful sign generally for steadying the ship. And finally, I just want to quickly touch on Labour and what happens there. Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn is completely vindicated, you know, by his own metrics and by gaining seats. He's done very well and it's hard to see anybody trying to get rid of him. It's been quite odd watching Labour MPs like Yvette Cooper and Chukurumana who were very anti-Mr Corbyn go on TV praising his victory and saying that of course they'd be willing to serve under his front bench after having spent the past couple of years criticising from behind but the party's actually not in a great place because it's stuck with him until he wants to go and if it fights another election under Jeremy Corbyn is it got any chance of winning it? Well it's impossible to rule it out given that we've just had our second huge electoral surprise in one year and our third in two years if you count the last general election so I'm, I'm leaving behind the business of ruling anything out I would say that the lesson of, of the evening is probably that a populist left-wing ticket can get you quite a lot of support but there's still very little evidence that it can win remember that Labour were taking on a indescribably bad Tory party running an atrocious campaign with the public beginning to feel a bit of an economic squeeze and they still fell somewhere short of the Conservative seats total. So I think the evidence that they can actually win a general election is no higher now than it was 24 hours ago. I think it does, though, mean that all this talk of splits in the Labour Party, there's still a lot of unhappiness on the right of the Labour Party, but they're not going anywhere now because Corbyn's had such a good campaign. And what you might get emerging is some sort of soft left compromise. The people around Jeremy Corbyn seem to be urging him to bring in the moderates and to form some sort of obvious leadership that shows you what a coalition the Labour Party is itself without even starting to talk to other parties. I think two things this changes for Labour. First of all, I'm sure a lot of the unhappiness on the right wasn't simply about ideology, but the sense that Corbyn was unelectable and that he was going to lead the party to a disaster. That hasn't happened, so that part at least changes whatever the difference is on policy. The other thing that's changes Labour is that this unexpected revival, it is a relatively modest revival, but a revival in Scotland, does then start to open up the future possibility of a Labour majority government at some point. And I think that's quite a positive step forward for them. 
And I think finally to round off, there's so much to keep thinking about. I just want to ask each of your thoughts on the landscape of British politics now and where this leads us. My thought on this is that we saw in last year's referendum that you can get a populist surge from the right and I think we've seen it this time you can get it from the left too and that we've underestimated that these things always come from a certain part of the ideological spectrum they can come from anywhere. Janan what's your? The lasting impression is that this is a country in stasis politically. In 2010 hung parliament, 2015 very narrow Tory majority this time a hung parliament. Even in 2005, you had a big parliamentary majority by Tony Blair, but a very small vote share. So really, you have to go back to the early 2000s and the 1990s for the last time the public were really sure about what they wanted from government. And I wonder how long you can have this kind of indecision without it affecting investors' views of the UK as a stable place to put their money. Yeah, and also, of course, the EU referendum was very close as well. It is really quite a fascinating point in history. And every time it seems as though it's either drifting one way or drifting another, you get a surprise. So um, what a time to be alive, as they say. I agree with all those, but I have a slightly more cheerful interpretation this morning, which is also that the union is now safe again. So the UK is not about to break up. We should be celebrating that. As we all nod our heads here. (laughs) But also the result in Scotland showed that people don't like a one-party state and the result south of the border showed that people don't like being told what to think. And they certainly didn't like the idea of a government presuming a huge mandate on the back of not very much confidence in its performance. And those are healthy things for the electorate to remind those in power that they do not wish to see. Well, it's certainly a fascinating time. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. There's so much more to discuss and think about from this election. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you very much to Miranda, Matt and Janan for joining this week. You can follow all of our coverage online at FT.com in this weekend's paper. But until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.